This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cameron Rosland, today is guest number one. She is a campaign producer at BFM, and she's also a lover of BTS and Walt Disney. She is Julian Yap. Hello, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure. And our other guest is, um, well, a, a, bit of, a bit of culture. The highest accolade we can give anybody is simply to say she is a historian. She is Natusha Naidu. Hi, Cam. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> Professor. So, uh, our three topics um, this week we're going to real light and shade here, and, uh, and quite education heavy, but uh, we're going to have contrast along the way. So, topic number one is: Does higher education work for everybody, or indeed does it work for anybody? And topic number two is legacy films. And finally, topic number three is: What is the purpose of education? So, uh, with topic number one, uh, it just so happens that the three of us here, I think, kind of cover the spectrum of um, educational experiences. Insofar as I, I failed at school, failed very badly. <laughs> well, I failed very well actually. I did not get to university, but I, and I really regret that. Uh, not so much as I get older, but certainly in my thirties, it just felt like a real absence. And uh, meanwhile, Julian went to university, but kind of found that it wasn't really for her. And finally, we have Natusha, who has gone very far in higher education. And uh, although she's going to tell us that she might be taking a bit of a break at the moment, she uh, could well be returning and, and really getting into the um, involved in the industry of universities and academia. So uh, I was wondering, how come it works for some and works for others? The, you kind of feel like higher education should be, well, one of pathway to the next phase in life but but it should also be something that could work for everybody and it, it, it didn't make a blind bit of sense to me can, can i start with you julian you you got past the hurdles that that stumped me but then you didn't quite enjoy it after that yeah and i think this is a personal thing maybe it was just how events turned out at the time when I was in school, how college and A-levels turned out. But I got to university, not the university that I actually wanted to go to, or even a very good one. I, I didn't understand it was what was expected of me. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I chose something that I had some interest in, nothing I was really passionate about. And when I got there, it just seemed it might have been my university. It completely is definitely me not completely throwing myself into it. I know a lot of people do and I, most hopefully most people do. I know people, you know, they, they truly love their university experience, but no, I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't enjoy the extra time that my university course gave me because I worked along, I took that time to get a work experience and understood more about the industry that I actually wanted to go into. So I, everything I liked about university was everything the university didn't give me. And everything university gave me um, I never, I've not used very much since, and I know that isn't necessary, but I don't feel like they gave me any lifelong usable skills. And I don't know, I, but I'm glad, I'm very glad that I did the, I had the experience that I had because of everything on the peripheral of university, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah that, that, yeah, I missed that on that. Anyway. So, but Natusha, you, you've gone pretty far and you, I mean, it's been hard work. It is hard work. And it's, uh, I don't know if it sits well with you. I mean, uh, do you enjoy the experience of university or is it a means to an end? Hmm. I think it's kind of a combination of both um, because 
I actually understand and completely empathize with what Julian mentioned about how universities and a lot of uh, college degrees don't provide you the skills or the info knowledge necessary to like discover who you really want to be in terms of your career or you know personal professional growth um, especially in terms of how like we see like universities kind of tailoring and accommodating and marketing their courses towards being like, oh, you know, this is going to help you get the job that you want. Um, but then that actually doesn't really happen in reality. It's kind of just like a little bubble and you have time to like have fun and read. And it really depends on, you know, your own volition and the universities are not actually providing the tools for you to get on with um, identifying your, your next steps. It's only, it comes as an afterthought in my opinion. Like you're nearing your final year and then suddenly like, oh, careers uh, center will have consultation with you and like, okay, um, so you did a degree in politics or in my case, like international relations. You could join consultancy, maybe McKinsey, BCG, some of those like big firms, right? And then you're like, but what if I don't want to do that? And then they go, um, dot, dot, dot. Um, I guess you could uh, continue your studies if you don't know what you want to do. So you see what I mean? Like, um, university is just kind of like a buying time before you go into like, you know, experiencing real professional growth. And that's like the case for a lot of people. So they're just kind of thrown at the deep end. And yeah, for me, it was like, I mean, I'm lucky that I had mentorship and a really good support system. And I found purpose in what I was doing. And I was able to have a lot of room and I was doing a lot of things outside university as an undergraduate anyway. So that's where my professional growth came from. So mm. yeah, I wouldn't attribute it to university as well. Well, I mean, I can just tell you too, that uh, there I was on the outside and I was doing that personal growth thing and, and it involved at that age, uh, getting up at noon and sort of crying. So <laughs> you didn't miss anything, <laughs> but um, can I ask, you know, it's a middle-class Malaysian thing, which is, you know, university is so that you go off and you get exposure and you meet other types of people uh, and, and that kind of thing. And that would have been something that I would have loved to have done. And I feel I missed out on, but what about you two? Did you, did you find that the, cause you, you both actually did part of your, well, in the case of Julian, you, you, you went to, you were in London, Natusha, you were in the University of Nottingham campus here in Malaysia, but then you also went to Cambridge. And, um, but what about the, the, the people around you? Because I have to say that, although I regret not going, uh, some of the biggest morons I've ever met have university degrees. Uh, Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's, for the better. <laughs> well, let, let's start with you, Natusha. What, uh, some, some of, I mean, did you, did you enjoy meeting these people? I mean, Cambridge is a slightly self-selecting bunch of upper middle class people yeah i mean it was totally contrasting experiences you know it's kind of a zero to a hundred for a lot of people or at least for the you know um students at cambridge and their perception of me because i studied locally in malaysia despite the fact uh you know it may be a british university in malaysia or whatever right and um it was a small department in nottingham malaysia a very close-knit you know, community of scholars and students. And so there was a lot of uh, kinship and um, intellectual support. But then when you go to Cambridge, which is a very alienating space, and you've got like, um, basically like a lot of um, the elite of, you know, um, the world, you know. 
So I was I was very much out of place then. I ended up being like friends with mostly Malaysians because yeah, I had a lot of difficulty making friends with people due to like class differences and mostly racial. Uh, was very racialized environment as well. So, what about you, Julian? Did you do that exposure, learning, seeing the world, that kind of thing? I think I did. I got I got both of those. I think I had the same experience. Natusha did. I had that difficulty connecting with a lot of people, but at the same time, I had a it was so easy for me to co- connect with people outside of my university in um, not necessarily the field that I want to be in, but also in the field that I want to be in. Other people who, um, people who were um, Asian, East Asian diaspora in the UK, I connected with them really easily. I was able to connect with, like you said, a lot of different people. But also similarly, I got that experience through working as well. And a lot of that was through working. It wasn't through university at all. I didn't really feel like you know that university photo where you, you're on the on the grass and everyone's I got I never had that no one spoke to me ever because they thought I couldn't speak English which, which was kind of terrible but um yeah we were you know we were in like the center of London it didn't really make sense but it was almost um like like Natusha said alienating but also I got those experiences outside of uni, but I couldn't have I couldn't have gotten that without leaving the little bubble that I am in in, in KL. Can I oh. ask really quickly? Did you ever think about going though to university? Yeah, just like after you'd worked for a bit and got the experience, did you ever think like, oh well, now is the time? It would be good to. You know, did you ever want? Did you ever try? Or did you? Ever um, well, actually, quite recently, uh, friends of mine, and including including uh, Natusha. Um, you know, PhDs doing PhDs uh, at a late age, and and I was thinking, oh, I could do that. That'd be great. But then when they start describing what they're doing, it's like oh, such hard work. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know if I have it in me. I don't know if I have that uh, academic discipline in me. I mean, if it did involve getting up at noon, then sure, I'm a straight A student. <laughs> um, <laughs> send me the PhD now. Um, so we move on. Topic number two. Um, topic number two, Julian, uh, legacy films. Legacy films. I'm sure we've seen at least one in our time or at least have been pressured to watch one just because you have. You must have seen this. Um, cinemas are open in Malaysia at the moment. They've just opened. Everyone's rushing to go back. Um, but because, you know, we had such a huge break in the distribution window of films last year and earlier this year there there's a huge backlog of these films you've got matrix you've got top gun maverick james bond just come out um yeah all of these films that are oh jurassic world's coming out next year and there's ghostbusters as well there are so many these are films that are not going to be just another sequel you know these are going to be cultural touch points they're going to add to the lexicon of pop culture and they seem to be coming out every year now. And soon we're going to just be getting them all the time where they're not going to be just special, important things anymore. Um, but I was thinking about how this is the perfect thing that cinemas might, that cinemas need, right? Because this is what, no one's going to go back. No one's going to go to the cinema for a little independent movie, unfortunately, because that, that you want to have, you want to be able to see Star Wars and you want to be able to see like dinosaurs and, and stuff in the cinema you want that experience but um i was looking at just legacy films in general and because there have been so many there have been so many reboots recently indiana jones there's a new one coming out with chris pratt for some reason he's in a lot of them harrison ford's in everything 
Um, but yeah, it's just really strange because all the people who probably enjoyed them then, they're in the positions making those choices now. They know what people want and what people are looking for. And it is a money thing, obviously. It's not, it's very simply, they're trying to get bums in seats. And that's an easy get because you play on nostalgia, but also a very, um, just looking at the, the at, at what legacy films are, um, you know, they, they always do the same thing. They, um, you know, they set up the challenge, the exact same challenge that the original uh, person had to go through. So Ray in Star Wars recently, she had to go through the exact same thing that Luke had to go through training and all of that. They, um, that link back to the old film. So you bring back Luke, you bring back um, Leia, you bring back Han Solo. So they all follow the same, you know, pattern and the same mm. recipe. And um, sounds, sounds unrisky. Unrisky and boring, but also it's so it's so easy because everyone knows that if you want to see Chewbacca, you can just go back. You you have to only see Chewbacca in Star Wars, and that's why things like The Mandalorian happens and like sequels are different, you know. But you know, mm. just as a film, and they follow the same thing. I I do love rewatching movies and old movies. Um, I mean, it, a nostalgia is like a money maker, right? But then there's also some, a bigger um, sentiment at hand, which is that like I have clinical anxiety and um, I mean clinically um, uh, diagnosed anxiety. So like, uh, and one of the things that they say, like if you are someone who is like seriously anxious, um, you have a tendency of rewatching old movies or movies that you are familiar with as a way of calming yourself down. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of these legacy films are you know, central to our childhood or you know times of like when we are feeling like uncertain then watching a an old film you know all these like very iconic films right to bring comfort so we are living in obviously during this pandemic and everyone is really struggling with the uncertainty of this pandemic which would um is which would really like um heighten this need for comfort that legacy films can provide right so and people who fund films are like seeing that this is an opportunity uh, and a gap to fill in right now during covid so that's what i thought about when julian um, yeah. mentioned this i i, I agree entirely natusha but I, I i would disagree in saying that producers have spotted the gap i don't know if they have spotted that gap um especially in those sort of those smaller independent movies that you're talking about i i guess i've been feeling I have been feeling very anxious and I have been wanting to watch uh, content that, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Reaffirming is, is, isn't going to challenge me. Uh, that's why, you know, Ted Lasso, yeah, for instance, well, not even necessarily Predict predictable, but it's emotionally, the journey is, I don't know, it's a different kind of journey. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not a horror film or whatever, but I have to say though, that the legacy things confuse me because I watched Cruella the other day. Oh yeah. Confuse the hell out of me. It's like the original, 101 Dalmatians came out in 1961. That's before I was born. Then there was a, a, a remake with Glenn Close in 1996, which is before you two were born. And no, then... I, I, was born. <laughs> I watched it, though. Yeah. Did you? I watched it, though. Yeah? yeah. Okay, so then they, <laughs> then they bring out a, a, an origin story, which, which wasn't necessary. Uh, but they, they fill it with images of the 1960, which is lost, surely lost on a young audience. And then they fill it with pop songs from the 1960s and 1970s, which again are completely lost on a young audience. And yet it did very well, but it did not do well in uh, one market, which is going to, going to become a big factor, which is China did very badly in China because 
China knows nothing about your legacy films. Yeah. You know, they were all like Cultural Revolution when Cruella de Vil was first gathering her 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> 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 and uh, so I, I, I'm kind of like, we are in this, this, perhaps it is a COVID backlog, but I don't know, moving forwards, are we going to be in legacy land forever? Do you think, Julian? Or is this for a one-off? For me, I think it will always happen because there's something about legacy films in that they have, um, and I didn't, I didn't coin this, there's this um, researcher called, film researcher called Dan Golden, and he, Golding, Dan Golding, and he said, um, legacy films have this thing called intergenerational transfer. So this could be um, a parent transferring it to a kid, their, their love and their nostalgia, or it could be, um, like, like you said, Cam, in China, someone who's never seen any of it, reintroducing um, someone to an entire franchise, an entire backlog and universe with something new. That's why these big films and these blockbusters do so well, just because it has that backlog. And I don't think that's ever going to stop just because it's such a moneymaker. The, the formula is tried and true. So, yeah. But up to a point, though, I think that, you know, this is not the first time I've been Legacy Land because, you know, uh, in the silent era, they made a bunch of movies. And then when television came along in color, they remade those movies, things like Ben-Hur. Yeah. Um, and then fairly recently, there was another Ben-Hur and it died a death. <laughs> but we've got to, we move on, though. And in a moment, we're going to be uh, returning to the uh, subject of education. And uh, I think it's a very important topic, which is what is the purpose of education here on Abiv Culture BFM 89.9? And we're back with myself, Cam Rusland, Julian Yap, and Natusha Naidu. And now, uh, topic number three, which is, what is the purpose of education? Do you, do you have a definitive answer, Natusha? Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I would say I do. <laughs> and maybe it's because, like, um, I think in different, uh, served uh, in different capacities or played different roles in ed education. Um, I went to a state, I went to state school education, um, you know, growing up and and then I went to a private college in Subang Jaya, Taylor's. Um, everyone knows that. Um, probably a lot of our listeners have gone to Taylor's. <laughs> and um, that, of course, like studying in a private British university in Malaysia. And then it kind of like it still felt like a zero to a hundred because then I went to Cambridge for my master's. You know, that's a completely different, uh, very elite environment, right? And when I came back, uh, for my master's, I graduated. I be, I was a teacher for a while in an international school. Then I left because I didn't like what I saw there and I didn't agree with the um, ethics and the way education was approached in this uh, international school, only to find out that it was the same all over Malaysia. And now I work in a nonprofit organization and my work is centering around producing um, educational resources on the history of Malaysia for teachers and all kinds of people to consume and read, right? And I think like from this, I feel that, I feel sad that education today is very much oriented towards like redundancy. It's not truly intentional. Nothing is intentional about the education system today. Designed to redundancy? That's why I, I, I don't quite get you. Yeah, like, you know, the system's not like, I feel like like current modes of education is not reflective of the needs of children or the next generation. For instance, what I think it lacks is um, creating room for empathetic conversations for emotional growth. 
Um, we don't have enough room for equipping with technical skills and prioritizing how every subject, you know, including history for that matter, needs to be reformed and re, uh, revised. Like the way we teach and pedagogy needs to evolve with the times, not just about emotional growth, but also, you know, like um, equipping with technical skills and, you know, how this knowledge has, uh, there's all kinds of knowledge actually have value, but we have a hierarchy of subjects that's from this very famous um, um, educator who gave a TED talk about this, uh, Sir Ken Robinson. I mean, that was a TED talk that happened ages ago and he's already passed away, but somehow what he said um, is still relevant today. And that shows that there's not been much changes in our education system. And, um, you know, we end up like, I feel like it's just kind of like following a prison kind of logic almost. Um, I mean, some say it like, traces back to the colonial period, but also just like it just keeps getting reproduced and what education is today is that it is breaking you and molding you into being what is expected of you in society and society's mediocre standards rather than pushing and thriving for um, diversity differences and um, self-actualization and you know truly uh, your potential because you know mediocrity is what keeps the system going and I think that that needs to change. Um, all that needs to go away. So, well, yeah, it's, I sound really jaded, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit too uh, young to be jaded, but just, it's just because a little, of all these roles. Yeah. yeah, just a little jaded. I was very bleak. That was not the uh, the the Ghostbusters reboot that I was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Julian, what do you what do you think? Do you think that uh, do you do you, do you recognize educate the education? I I do actually the the education um, philosophy that uh, Natusha has so. <laughs> happily pointed out i have wondered this I, i've always wondered if it's because i didn't enjoy my own experience and i didn't get anything out of it or if it's because i didn't study something and do you know how you know doctors have to go to, to medical school to learn that craft and i didn't do that i didn't learn a specific craft so i don't have a purpose for my education really i was i've always wondered if that was my feelings towards higher education thinking that we don't need that thinking that we are just in this box and it's our it's up to us to break out this box but we can't break out of that box just because of our how much society what we need to contribute to society and all of that i've always wondered if that is because of my own experience though mm, yeah i'm glad i mean my experience too I, I think that the greatest lesson that education can teach you is uh teaching you how to conform um it you know the the the, the syllabus yep. is is the the package of how authority imagines society should be right now and uh, if you can lock into that and you can conform to that then uh, you're good to go uh i those of us who <laughs> unable to to fit into that for one reason or another simply because i just wasn't listening um you know, it's it life on the other on the other side is very really quite difficult because you just don't know what the rules are. But if you can, if you can prove that you can sit there, listen to something that's not interesting, and then play it back in in the exam form that they like, then you've proven that you are. Um, what is it? There was another TED Talk fellow who was saying, you know, a brilliant sheep. Um, uh, so I outdid you there with cynicism, Natusha. <laughs> Yes, you really did. <laughs> but Natusha, and yet you got you've gotten you got as far as your masters, um, which is like way further than me and 
Julian, I mean, you, you, you inside the system, you worked the system, you, you did okay. You're doing okay. You could do it. But, so what are you complaining about, woman? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do acknowledge that the privilege, the certain level of privilege came with, you know, my education pathway. Um, huge, and in fact, like leaps and bounds. But I mean, it came to a cost to my mental health, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and also like just, um, there's a lot of like things I had to unlearn from my formal education experience. And that is why, like, I think um, um, I got to go a little further ahead and it's because I, you know, went through that um, process of interrogating and questioning and trying to come up with um, new practices, you know, whether it was as a, as a master's student in Cambridge or like in my capacity of, you know, public history work in Malaysia or as a teacher in a classroom, um, yeah, and you know, every time I have the opportunity to interact with um, Malaysian students, I do realize that to make that real like um, impact, um, you know, you would need to like really challenge the system and introduce a new way of thinking about things. And in my case, like it's about uh, rethinking how we teach history and um, the role of uh, historical education in um, society and personal uh, growth as well, you know. Um, but yeah, it requires, you know, to not follow, to conform. And even though you get bad class, you just go like, just go ahead, just keep swimming, right? So, mm. yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian, you're part of the Rebel Alliance in terms of that. But could you, could you imagine an education system that would have worked for you, that would have given you, I don't know, something you wanted, that you needed? Similar to Natusha, I had um, my higher education, not even higher education, my college ruined my mental health. I didn't mm. do well be- personally because of my mental health. I, like, I don't know if I don't maybe the course wasn't great. I, I'm pretty sure it was also because of me. I don't think that there are people. Obviously, there are different learning styles. Everyone knows the different learning styles, but they don't apply that to the examination or the testing process. I don't do well in testing processes. I did dis- I did a dissertation and I, I did exams as well. None of them worked for me. I know that it's not possible to, maybe it's not possible to do and to give degrees or do education the right way if you don't have a testing process, but I don't, that's what I would, I, that's what I would take away. Um, similarly on, on this, not exactly, you know, the purpose of it, but over the course of the pandemic, I've been thinking, um, oh no, I should learn this. I've got all this time. I should maybe like take up coding or something. I should actually learn something useful um, because there are all these resources online. But I think I, um, you know, something that's always been stopping me was that, which I had to unlearn. And this may, I thought this was kind of silly once I learned it, but it kind of held me back for a really long time was that I'd never picked up a lot of skills because I, I thought I had to learn things the right way. So if I wanted to learn a skill, I had to do it in a class or I had to do it where I had to be tested to do it. And um, once I got over that, and it took a long time over the course of the last year, so I picked up lots of little skills and little hobbies over over time, and they won't amount to anything, but I've added a lot to my own personal knowledge, and it's never going to be, you know, a full-time job or anything, but I'm happy that I've learned them. And learning um, learning that I don't have to do it properly, I think was a really big step for me, and I didn't think that that it was going to be a big step, you know? So the purpose of learning things is actually just to learn something was a big deal. And I'm very glad that I've reached that. I'm learning yeah. Korean now. I'm so oh. glad. 
Well, well yeah, of course, so cool. of course you are. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I thought that this episode was going to be sort of like a education affirming uh, episode, but we, we three have kind of stepped in and sort of, you know, destroyed the entire edifice, <laughs> trampled yes, on its broken carcass. Yeah, yeah? really. I don't know yes. a lot of people who would sort of hold up education as this must be, you know, must do experience. Everyone. I don't know any. Well, doctors. A boomer. Yeah. A boomer. Um, well, here, that's how he came. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm one of the kids. Um, <laughs> I did a V sign there for young people. <laughs> well, I can't believe that at the end of that, uh, there was I saying that I, I regret not having gone. And now I feel like I'm the one who's the lucky one of the three of us. <laughs> and, uh, but Natusha, afterwards, we'll talk about, you know, the certificate you got for your master's. You can, you can, you can send it to me and I'll just scrub out your name and put my name there instead because your family don't care anyways, apparently. So <laughs> and you don't care. Sure, so. sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. No problem. I'll, ta I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> Take it off your hands. No, no, no worries. So uh, we move on, though, to the final part of the show, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. And I go first. Uh, my recommendation is the, the, the books of um, the French author Georges Simenon and uh, his Inspector Maigret series. He wrote them from uh, about 1930 to 1970. He wrote about 70 of them. Um, and I, I was struggling trying to find something to read. And I, and I there was this I'd bought one years ago. I've forgotten all about it. And as I started reading, it was fantastic. It's fantastic. And and I've I've read like ten in in quick succession. They're really quite short. And uh, he's um, uh, his insight into the human uh, condition is just extraordinary. He write, it, well, this is in English translation. He writes so simply, um, and it's but it's just whoa. How did you know that about people? And, uh, and it, so they're all, um, uh, you know, mystery whodunit type things. But it's not so very different from the, the the English ones of Agatha Christie or Conan Doyle, where it's really kind of about the flashiness of the uh, investigator, and and also a bit too much reveling in the the murder itself. It's a bit uh, the murder is too flashy. It's too bizarre. Whereas this is just really humdrum life and a man who's just methodically working his way through trying to find out what the hell happened. I, I really can't get enough of them, and I, I just think they're extraordinary. So that, that's the Georges Simenon's Inspector Maigret series. Um, and, uh, and just before anybody you know, asked, he was a man of his time. And uh, <laughs> some of the things that are said are like, oh, you can't say that. And uh, so, but it, you know, it's good to know what people were thinking in the 1930s. Besides those, have they aged well? Do you think? Do you think those stories, if they had, if they were adapted today, do you think they could work? Or yeah, I, absolutely. Um, in fact, that, that was kind of why I stumbled onto it because uh, there's been an adaptation, a British one, with uh, Rowan Atkinson as um, Inspector Maigret, uh, and Rowan Atkinson actually looks very different from from how Maigret is uh, described, except he has a pipe. That's like Maigret's signature thing. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely, because it's um, it's procedural. I think that you know when you have a police procedural that really concentrates on the procedural, it's like yeah, that's what I want to know. I want to know how how do you piece it together? I don't want I don't after I love Sherlock Holmes, but at the same time, it's like just get on with it. <laughs> Stop showing off. Just get on with it. So um, yeah, I, yeah, they work today. Sorry, so, what was the name again? Uh, Georges Simenon. And uh, Inspector Maigret is the uh, the uh, detective. Uh, as I say, oh, what interesting! Yeah, huh? I watched the Rowan Atkinson one. Oh yeah, do do. <laughs> uh, I I don't think I don't know if French people would 
would say it 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 really works but i think it does work or oh, the locations they shoot all of them now but they shot all in hungary and the locations are amazing i want to go to hungary it's just a de decrepit uh place that's just extraordinary architecture so um uh, julian what's your recommendation um mine is very it's not the same thing <laughs> um i'd like to recommend a particular talk a TikTok, or an instagram page really um a creator her name is alexis nicole um you might if you, if you frequent the internet and the social medias you might have seen her videos they go viral quite often um her she's also known as the black forager and she is the most infectious person you'll ever see on the internet and she is basically she is an educator kind of you know she she lives in north america and she goes around her neighborhood or the places that she visits and she identifies the plants or the edible anything that's edible really she's a forager um but um she'll highlight the ones that are in your neighborhood that mo that you'll find in almost all american neighborhoods or if you find along this coastline you'll find this very specific seaweed that you can make into this very cool sugar and and she'll has she has recipes she's she she tells you how to identify between the poisonous one and the the one that will be tasty um and how to prepare them safely and they, they're very condensed obviously because they're TikToks. they're one minute long but they do give you a lot of information she tells you um what can can or can't be eaten really in in your area and i know that doesn't really apply here but but the really great thing is is that she's kind of i i haven't really got into it and haven't taken the time to understand more about um, Malaysian plants or things that are like native to our area but it has made me want to find out more and actually want to know more about what's here naturally and what was put here by landscapists or city planners and you know for example what trees were used 60 years ago when they were planning the streets just because they were cheap and what they've done to the natural landscape I think that's super cool um, so yeah, she is on Instagram and on TikTok as the Black Forager. And if you don't do those, she was in the New York Times a couple of months ago. So you can read that too. Wow. Oh, the Black Forager. Yeah. The Black Forager. Cool. Cool. I like that kind of thing. I like that kind of thing. Uh, Natusha, uh, what do you have? Okay. Well, before I get to my recommendation, uh, I just wanted to add um, and recommend in relation to the Black Forager, um, uh, maybe you should check out this book by Sharifa Nadira called uh, The Forgotten Taste. So she's a Malaysian artist who has done um, field work in an indigenous village uh, and, you know, documented all the uh, plants, edibles and recipes, which are all, you know, just all uh, histories that's been passed down intergenerationally and gives you this really uh, peripheral insight into taste, consumption and culture in Malaysia. Um, it's a really great book, and I think it's like available everywhere now. Um, yeah, and beautiful illustrations, by the way. So, um, yeah, I would definitely recommend that since um, uh, yeah, into this area of work, Julian. And oh, okay, so yeah, no problem. <laughs> and uh, I I think like in relation to education and to kind of like um get people to understand why uh you know okay going to a place like Oxbridge is like gives you a bust and like makes you feel jaded about the education system. Uh, there, there's a, a new series, uh, not so new given how quickly uh, things uh, come into fashion and uh, decline, um, a Netflix series called The Chair, uh, which stars Sandra Bullock and you know the whole thing centers around this like elite um, liberal arts college in the US and how 
um, you know, like the education of English literature, any you know any subject in any part of the world, higher education is just a space for like politics and it has very little to do with actually teaching and um it's a very um, raw very realistic depiction of what happens in higher education and um i found it rather uh triggering to, and very frustrating and angry because i saw it all you know in person as well as a student and you know having a lot of academic uh friends so uh, i mean friends who have become like you know um on tenure track or whatever and so I think it's a really great series to kind of get like to know about how education, higher education is so preoccupied with first world problems. <laughs> hmm. um, and Sandra was great, like, you know, brilliant performance and the script is wonderful. So I definitely recommend um, the chair. Okay. Uh, the chair, which, I, which I've held out from actually. But, I have uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, this week's show, which has been a surprise for me because... Um, We've dismantled the edifice that is education, uh, I think, for a generation. And, uh, we, and we've left nothing in its wake, just a desolate wasteland of ignorant people. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah. Well done, we Natusha. <laughs> thank yeah, you, Natu thank you. <laughs> Natusha Naidu M. Phil Oxon. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so anyway, it reminds me to thank, uh, well, Julian Yap, thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Natusha. Nice to actually get to talk about all this. Hey, can you yeah. say that in Korean yet? No. Next, next time, next show. Okay, we'll do the next show in, with Julian doing everything in Korean. Yeah. And uh, thank you also then to Natusha Naidu. Yes, thank you so much. It's been really fun um, to come on a bit of culture and, yeah, talk to Julian and as always, you know, it's always nice to talk to you, Cam. So, <laughs> yeah, and you play it to your family, you show them. Uh, yes, yes, I will, I will. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and and so, and, and me, Cam Rusland, and so thank you, and please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.